Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, we're back. We are back with uh, another great guest. We, we sure have been on a roll, haven't we? Uh, it's kind of incredible every week that we get such a variety of guests and uh, everything from, you know, former military to, you know, longtime war correspondents to uh, today, uh, the, the self-described uh, or Nina Turner's described minister of ice cream. Uh, ben Cohen, who is so much more than that. Uh, I think most folks probably know Ben. Uh, he probably has more name recognition than almost anybody else we've had, you know, up to and including Colin Powell's chief of staff, you know. Uh, and that says something because I don't imagine there are a lot of other business leaders where that's true. Uh, and if it is true, they're usually sociopaths uh, <laughs> uh, who are sort of masters of the universe. So you know, Ben is an American businessman, activist, and philanthropist, and of course, co-founder of the ice cream company, Ben & Jerry's. Uh, I'll go into a little bit more on his background, but I think something that's kind of interesting is personal connections. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, how he and I met. Uh, it was kind of surreal. I got an email. Uh, ben, I don't even remember how long ago it was, but uh, maybe three years ago or something. I'm still in the army. I'm struggling through Fort Leavenworth, just hating my new assignment, ready to just wishing that I could somehow get out. And uh, I get an email uh, short to the point. I, I like your writing. I'd like to talk more, see what we can do together. Signed, you know, Ben Cohen parentheses, you know, of Ben and Jerry's or something like that. And uh, I read it and like, I wasn't, I mean, I was writing a lot, but I wasn't getting any particular traction. You know, I just was kind of yelling in the wind, still in the army. And I was skeptical. I was like, this is not Ben from Ben and Jerry's. There's no chance that I would get that email. So I showed my then wife, you know, we still laugh about it. We're friends. And I said, I, this can't, can't be real. And she says, listen, I don't know that his assistant is CC'd and she has like an app Ben and Jerry's email. So what do you have to lose? You know? So uh, I fired back, we talked on the phone and kind of things went from there. And we, we met in New York and I've uh, hung out in Vermont and just had a great relationship. So I guess the moral of the story is uh, anything could happen and you have nothing to lose, take it seriously. So uh, that was, that was pretty cool. And it's been my absolute kind of surreal pleasure. So, uh, so Ben, thanks for that email or we wouldn't be having this conversation. Certainly. Well, it's great to be here with you in the fortress, Danny. In the fortress, right, right. The fortress on a hill, uh, uh, rather than the city on a hill. It's uh, an interesting 
play on things. And I have to credit Henry with that, uh, uh, my longtime co-host. So, all right, so I'll just get through the, the, the embarrassing stuff and the bio. And Ben's probably so sick of hearing it. He's probably going to mute us on, you know, Lake Champlain, where he is right now, if you, uh, if you can hear, which I think is, is awesome in terms of authenticity. Uh, you know, Ben is associated with Vermont in the common imagination, but actually he's born in Brooklyn and then raised in Long Island in Merrick, Long Island, which maybe we'll talk about. Uh, it's got kind of its own interesting and sordid racial history uh, for this moment. And, uh, and while he was there, he met and befriended his future business partner, Jerry Greenfield, uh, in seventh grade in gym class in 1963. So I'm clearly, I'm clearly dating Ben here a little bit. And, you know, the next kind of portion of his life has always interested me even before he met, you know, over the next decade, you know, he pursues his interest in pottery. He, he, he mixes his kind of further education, you know, Skidmore, the University Without Walls, the New School, NYU, but also like a variety of working class jobs. And, and this interests me because, you know, the right wing oligarchs and pundits, you know, I'm talking the Bill O'Reilly's with their worship of Levittown. Uh, they kind of worship the bootstraps myth, which in many cases is a myth, but Ben kind of lived it. He had gigs as, you know, I'm sure I'm not getting them all here, Ben, but a, a McDonald's cashier, a Pinkerton guard, pottery deliverer, a deliverer of pottery wheels, mop boy at a few places, including friendlies, assistant superintendent, ER clerk, taxi driver, uh, and then eventually a craft teacher at a private school uh, for emotionally disturbed adolescents upstate in New York. And, uh, you know, so while he was at the Highland Community School, that's when he sort of was really experimenting with ice cream. So, of course, at that point, 1977, Ben and Jerry with their, you know, gym class uh, scheme from years before uh, open up, you know, decided to go into business and open up Ben and Jerry's uh, homemade ice cream parlor in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and there the shop became kind of a hit in the very cool, I can attest, uh, I finally got there about a year and a half ago university town it's, it's really a, a cool spot and so ben and jerry's blows up everyone knows uh, nationwide business one of the largest companies in the usa for ice cream and you know the key there is that then you know ben and, and jerry they turn like the newfound wealth and prominence into like a variety of social causes so this is the ben and jerry's foundation which is a lot of the pre-tax profits go into that and uh but ben has worked on so many other things so uh, we'll talk about some of them. True majority business leaders for sensible priorities. He's been involved with the uh, project on government oversight. And uh, in 2012, in response to the stealing of elections, you know, legally by the court and Citizens United, he's been working on this stamp stampede, stamping money out of politics. Uh, and most recently, he was national co-chair of uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Anyway, finally, I ramble on, but he's also, and I feel compelled to say it, uh, a genuinely warm and wonderful man, and uh, dare I say, has become kind of a rather surreal mentor and friend. So, Ben, now that I've sufficiently embarrassed both of us, uh, just thanks again for coming on. Uh, it's great to be here, Danny. It's great to be here with you and uh, working Absolutely. together. Absolutely, uh, you've been um, at it longer than I have. Make and, our country um, a more incredible just how place to be associated with that you've become. So you know, getting down to quote the uh, business. You know, my I'll I'll open up with the first sort of question in our you know sort of chill conversation. Uh, I a, a lot of things have happened because of our initial relationship um, and things have just kind of spiraled in a million directions. But the other day 
I was on the Drop the Mics live feed uh, with Nina Turner, uh, the senator, uh, you know, spokesman, surrogate for Bernie Sanders, just become this huge national figure. And I'm a huge super fan. And she called you during our thing. She called you the minister of ice cream. Uh, and, and it was funny, and uh, and I've heard that kind of language, and and I've also heard you uh, jokingly sort of refer to yourself as the ice cream guy, or or joke that you know who knows if this or that you know prominent figure would want to hear from the ice cream guy, and it it is funny, and in one sense I guess it's strictly true, <laughs> uh, because you did co-found this super successful franchise, uh, with all this notoriety and logo concept name recognition, and but at the same time. Not everyone, but I think a lot of folks, even some political lay people, know that, you know, you also co-chaired the Bernie campaign. Uh, plenty of people associate you with what I think is a pretty unique for corporate leaders flavor of sort of lifelong progressive activism. And we're not talking about just a big charity or big single cause foundations, but everything from local ground game, you know, national and foreign policy work, the whole deal, gritty stuff sometimes. So while I won't force you to import your, you know, impart your life story, though you're welcome to if you are as verbose as I, you know, why has that always been such an important aspect of your professional and personal life? And what were some of the early, I don't know, issues or events that got you motivated in the first place? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I was kind of uh, a serious, uh, nerdy, fat kid uh, growing up. And, uh, you know, in school, in public school, you hear these wonderful things about uh, our country, about America, that it's a place of fairness and equality and uh, and justice. I mean, I, I lately I've been really thinking about uh, the Pledge of Allegiance that you know we all said every day in, in public school and. It ends with the words, and justice for all. And, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I don't know, inspired by the, uh, the idea of that, that that's what this country is about. And, uh, you know, and then you grow up and you find out that uh, it's never really been about justice for all. Uh, it's been about uh justice for uh well, essentially people who have enough money and people that are uh the right color and and originally people that were males and uh i i you know i remember uh when i grew up on long island uh Sometimes my family would drive into uh, Manhattan to, I don't know, go to a museum or uh, a show. And, uh, and the route that we took into Manhattan led us off uh, on this street, uh, 125th Street, which was kind of the border between you know, the upper class uh, area of Manhattan on one side and uh, Harlem on the other side, which was at that time, uh, you know, a, a place that was uh, full of buildings that were uh, broken down and crumbling and, and garbage on the streets and, uh, you know, people suffering and, and living in poverty. And, 
you know, it just didn't seem right to me. It didn't make sense that, you know, here's this incredible wealth on one side of this imaginary line, and on the other side is this incredible poverty. And, um, you know, that never sat right with me. And, uh, you know, I I think uh, as Ben and Jerry's... uh, you know, became well known, and uh, and as you know, the media would get in touch with me. Reporters calling up saying, you know, we want to interview you about this or that, or you know, uh, different organizations, colleges, business organizations would say, you know, we want you to come and speak with us. Uh, I decided to use that platform to talk about uh what i really cared about uh which was justice and I, you know i guess <laughs> i mean you're talking about being verbose i mean i'm just kind of running on here but uh you know also when i was growing up it was during the, the time of the cold war between the u.s and, and the former soviet union I kept on having this image of, you know, these two countries that have, you know, this huge pile of shiny brand new weapons kind of facing each other. And behind those weapons were people that were living in poverty on both sides, people who could not get their basic human needs met in terms of food clothing, housing. And, um, you know, that never made sense to me. I mean, uh, you know, the people of the United States didn't have anything against the people of the Soviet Union and vice versa. Um, so I don't know. I've, I've tried to, uh, you know, use whatever, you know, notoriety I've got to to try to you know talk uh try to try to shift national budget priorities and trying to get people to to understand the huge amount of money that we spend every year uh supposedly to defend ourselves from uh you know from some kind of boogeyman enemy out there, you know, the enemy of the of the day, uh, you know, either the Soviet Union or uh, terrorism or China or uh, I don't know who else, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, I mean, uh, what, North Korea, Cuba, you know, uh, it's, it's just absurd. I mean, uh, it's not about uh, defending our country. It's about uh, invading and dominating other countries. Um, so I don't know. That's what. That's what. Uh, does that answer your question, there, Danny? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course, of course. No, I mean, I've always been interested. And we've only loosely talked about it, and I and I, I think it, people people are probably interested. And I'm sure you've said it a lot of times before, but. I mean, I, but I do think that what you're saying is is striking because it sounds so natural to you, and yet that 
empathy, that sort of natural inclination to see fellowship, even with enemies, right, quote unquote, or with the poor and I, and Harlem. And, I, you know, being in Staten Island, I had sort of a similar experience as you in terms of, you know, straddling those worlds and, and, and viewing it. And I mean, I still remember uh, there was a movie, I believe, and, you know, you're probably old enough to know I'm just an old soul, but it was called like Across 110th Street. And it was, you know, all about the, uh, the mob and uh, black and Italian and all this. But, you know, there were these real definitive boundaries, you know, in New York, especially in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, before the, the big crime drop. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I, but it's rare. And then and then, of course, well, you know, I'm going to ask you about it a little more later. But then you got rich. I mean, you had a mob, right? For real, like you were really wielding a mob. And then next thing you know, you, you really did become a rich guy. And and yet that didn't end. Right. I mean, that's is that that's strange. I'm sure you ran in circles at that point where not everyone responded to wealth the way you did. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think one of the differences for, for Jerry and myself is that we never really planned on becoming business people. Uh, you know, he was he was trying to become a doctor and couldn't get into medical school and I was trying to become a potter and nobody would sell my nobody would buy my pottery and um you know and then you know so we couldn't we couldn't make a living we couldn't get jobs and we felt like um well maybe our only chance of success is to you know start a little um homemade ice cream shop and and that was all we ever planned on being. We never really planned on being anything more than this one homemade ice cream shop at an old gas station uh, in in Burlington, Vermont. And, uh, so, you know, and when we opened up that one shop, we said, we want to run our business in a way that the regular everyday man or woman on the street would like to see a business run uh, that we didn't approach it from the point of view of you know I think most people who go into business they go into business because they want to make a lot of money and they go to business school to do that and uh, that was not uh, our motivation and um, so we but what we were inspired to do was to run a business the way regular everyday people would like to see a business run. And we, you know, we ended up realizing that uh, business is nothing more than uh, a, a well-to-do neighbor in a community and that it needs to um, take part in the community, that it needs to give give back to the community to return to the community not just suck labor and uh you know the infrastructure out of the community and and we you know as the business got bigger uh you know, first our, actually our first reaction was that uh we were becoming just another cog in the in the corporate machine that uh oppresses a lot of people uh that uh despoils the environment that uh exploits its employees and uh we didn't 
want any part of that. And our first reaction was to sell the business. Um, and then I ran into this old eccentric restaurant tour that I had come to know because I was the ice cream delivery guy. I was delivering ice cream to his, his little restaurant. And I told him we were planning on selling the business. And he said, man, how could you possibly do that? How could you do that? The business is your baby. And it's just uh, starting to develop. And it's got such incredible potential ahead of us. And, and I said, Maurice, you know what business does. It exploits its employees, exploits the environment, uh, and uh, you know is part of this economic machine that 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 oppresses a lot of people. And he said, Ben, if there's something you don't like about business, why don't you just do it different? And, uh, that had never occurred to me before, and uh, we ended up deciding to keep the business and you know, kind of do this experiment to to see if it was possible that business could be used to repair society instead of to kind of destroy society. Uh, to see if it was possible that business was really just a neutral tool like a hammer and that you could either use it to tear things down or you can use it to build things up. And so that was the uh, path that we embarked on, uh, you know, sometime in the 1980s. And uh, it's been an amazing journey. We've, we've certainly, we've, we've learned a whole lot. We've tried a lot of different things. Some of it's worked, some of it hasn't. Um, in, in terms of what we've been able to do to improve the quality of life for people in the various communities that we're part of. Um, you know, and, and it's much the same way that uh, the process of, you know, ice cream flavor innovation goes. You know, most flavors that we try to develop never make it out of the lab because, you know, they don't really work out. <laughs> and then, you know, and then a lot of the flavors that we develop, you know, they, they go onto the market and for one reason or another, you know, people don't really like them that much and they get discontinued. Uh, but there's some of them that you experiment with and, and they work and people love it, like chocolate chip cookie dough. And so we do that same kind of uh, innovation process. Uh, with our social mission at Ben and Jerry's, and you know, and now that I'm I'm really not that involved in the company, uh, I I do it on my own in the in the other projects that I'm personally involved in. Well, I there's so much there that I could follow up on, and and uh, well, I'm going to go against all instinct and proclivity and let uh and let Henry jump into his kind of first follow on or first question. And then, uh, and then I'm definitely gonna want to circle back some of that. So that, that, thank you so much. Let's hear it, Henry. All right. All right. I, um, I'd like to turn now to discussing my, my favorite politician. Indeed. I'm comfortable saying my the favorite politician of the podcast, Bernie Sanders. Um, we've been Bernie fans since we started the podcast and did an episode earlier this year, where we thoroughly examined his history of national security. But you, 
you have been a Bernie fan since he was mayor of Burlington, uh, where, where you still live today, and then much more recently um, a co-chair of his campaign alongside such progressive stalwarts as, as Nina Turner and Congressman Ro Khanna, uh, among others. Could you give us uh, a little glimpse into actually knowing Bernie? Uh, you know, what is he like as a, as a real person that you don't, you know, you don't just see in, in YouTube footage? And, and what do you think should be the next step for the progressive movement uh, following in, in Bernie's footsteps? Uh, you know, I think Bernie is uh, a true believer and uh, an innovator and, uh, and a fighter for justice. Um, he, he first came to my attention when he was running for mayor of Burlington uh, in the 1980s, uh, you know, close to when Ben and Jerry's was first starting. And uh, I just couldn't believe and was so amazed and inspired that uh, here was a guy running for public office talking about meeting people's basic human needs, uh, talking about uh, working for, to, to turn our country and the state of Vermont and the city of Burlington into one that genuinely worked to meet the needs of regular everyday people instead of the needs of corporations and big donors to political parties. And uh, I, you know, I, I mean, I had never come across uh, a politician like that uh, in my life. And, uh, and, and therefore, I was not really very active politically. And, uh, you know, having, having this guy run, I mean, he was such a long shot. Nobody thought he had a prayer. He was running against a long-term incumbent Democratic machine uh, mayor, uh, Gordon Paquette, uh, who was in bed with the community, with the business community, ran the city for the benefit of the business community and, and wealthy people. And, uh, you know, and here's this guy, Bernie, coming in saying, uh, I'm a socialist and uh, I believe that we should take care of uh, the older people in our community that are barely getting by. Uh, I believe we should uh, take care of our students. I believe, and he was saying this even at that time, way, way back then, that uh, our country should provide universal health care for, for everybody and that uh, our country should not be going around uh, invading uh, other countries. At the time, uh, the country we were invading was Nicaragua. And, uh, I mean, it was a I mean, it was real education for me. I mean, I had I didn't even know the country was invading Nicaragua. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, and 
you know, uh, coming to get to know Bernie a little, I mean, he is, uh, you know, he's a, he's a serious guy, but he's also got, uh, a really good sense of humor. And, uh, he has talked in, in all his campaigns, uh, about how he's, you know, he's never going to uh, take any money from businesses or wealthy people. I mean, all of his campaigns from the very, very beginning were funded by individual small donors. Um, uh, so he's, and and also he's he's been so clear. I mean, you know, you think about. Uh, the way politics has been done and covered in our country. And, you know, it's all about uh, the personality of the person. It's all about, you know, what are they wearing? What did they have for breakfast? Uh, You know, what about their dog? Uh, And, and Bernie has been adamant that he will not run a campaign that is not based solely on issues. That's all he wants to talk about. That's all he thinks that people that's that that's why people should should or should not vote for a candidate is is not about uh you know how good does he smile but what are what does that candidate stand for? What are the the issues? And um, uh so he's continued to do that i mean i i've you know i I'd, I'd always thought that uh you know when you use the word socialist uh a, a lot of people in our country uh conflate that word with uh communist and uh and they also understand the 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 traditional meaning of that term in one sense which is you know, government ownership of the means of production. And, you know, that's certainly not what Bernie believes. Uh, but he's he's a socialist in, in the same way that Social Security is a socialist program. Uh, in the same way that other democracies that are that are capitalists uh, and Bernie, you know, I mean, I, you know, I think he's a social capitalist. I think that would be a much better description of the guy. You know, most politicians are corporate uh, capitalists. Uh, you know, run run the corporation, uh, run the run the society for the benefit of corporations. And Bernie is saying, let's run the society for the benefit of the community as a whole. Uh, you know, which seems to make a lot more sense to me, uh, you know, unless you happen to be uh, you know, a really wealthy person who thinks that, you know, should be running for, for your benefit. Yeah, that's it's really interesting the way you sort of break down the the misunderstanding of the word socialist and where Bernie fits in. And, uh, 
you probably know because anybody who's ever seen any like of my social media or attire knows that I'm like a Eugene Debs fanatic, you know, and plaster his courtroom quote, you know, about the underclass and being in it and all that everywhere I go. And then it was only years later, like embarrassingly so that I realized that, you know, Bernie had worked on like a documentary about Eugene Debs way back in the day i want to say even before you moved to burlington right i mean that that just to me is so indicative of like the kind of person he is and and the fact that he could become a national figure despite that and and all the things that opens him up to is really striking yeah yeah uh you know he he charted a new path in politics i mean you know before bernie it was not possible to run uh a presidential campaign unless you took big bucks from corporations and ultra wealthy people. And, you know, when he ran his first presidential campaign in 2016, uh, you know, I, I told him, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it's possible for you to raise enough money. Uh, you know, if you're only going to take small donations from everyday regular people and, you know, and then I came to understand that Bernie knew that if there weren't enough people in the country that were willing to donate small amounts of money to to his campaign, that when he finally got elected, there would not be enough of a grassroots army of supporters to help him pass the legislation that he wanted to do. So, you know, for him, if he couldn't raise the money from small donations from individuals, you know, kind of kind of a democratic way of doing it, uh, as opposed to autocratic, uh, he he didn't want any part of it. He, you know, he was happy to lose if there weren't enough regular everyday people that were willing to donate to him. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think could be affected by it, a young person looking to join the military or possibly parents advocating for a kid joining the military, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on those same minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think might be affected by it. Please take a moment, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer of the podcast, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, 
Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. And do understand that if you can't afford to contribute to us, that doesn't bother us at all. This is a hard time for everybody, and we just want to make sure that what we share gets to as many people as possible. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, and uh, we, yeah, that so that's kind of an interesting segue to my uh, next question about you know big money and and business leaders and where they fit in. But as an aside, but I think a very important one, what you're bringing up is that he really has transformed the way campaigns are done because now even the right, right, even the more conservative candidates or even the more establishment candidates at least have to act or play by his new rules. They have to like tout their small donations and it's like everyone has learned from bernie sanders even the corporate oligarch parties i mean it's really fascinating in a way uh yeah yeah it is i mean it's really interesting that you see uh politicians like uh trump or xyz uh you know mainstream politicians trying to get people to donate one dollar so that they could then uh make the statement that their average donation is is low uh so that the the one dollar ones would would kind of balance out the uh you know, the, the fifty thousand dollars absolutely uh, well, you know, so and then and then you you mentioned how you told him that you weren't sure initially in 2016 or 2015 when he was thinking of running whether he could do it. And you mentioned uh, how like the former mayor and, and just about every politician at the national level was like in the, you know, in the tank for the business leaders. And so, again, like not to completely just fawn over you, but uh, you're different in a way than some of those business leaders. And um, and I imagine you can correct me if I'm wrong when I'm, you know when I get through my question, but like, I imagine there aren't a ton of like super wealthy, you know, we're talking wealthier than you, right? The ones that make you look poor and like the super billionaire class. I can't imagine that there were a whole lot of them actively backing Bernie, um, and, which is interesting. You know, you, you sent me a, uh, and I can edit it if, <laughs> if you don't want it. Uh, you sent me like a funny, but I thought like instructive offhand quip in an email, like a couple of weeks back, um, and I hope you don't mind me sharing, but, you know, this was like right after I returned from the about base veterans for peace, direct action in Tulsa, you know, we had a bunch of people arrested and, and you said something to the effect of, you know, you know, I've been thinking about, you know, maybe finding, you know, something important to get arrested about too lately. And, and I, ju- I just love that because it wasn't braggy uh, and it wasn't too serious or too unserious. And I, and I read it, even if a lot of people didn't, wouldn't know, you know, knowing full well that you have been arrested before. 
you know, and this just this is just doesn't something that I think we can say or we're going to see anytime soon from, say, Jeff Bezos or certainly not the surviving Koch brother and heck, not even the great, you know, touted philanthropist Bill Gates. Um, and of course, beyond that, you know, you and Jerry are also highly savvy and successful businessmen, even if that wasn't the plan. And even if there was a lot of fits and starts, as you mentioned, but even there in the socially conscious naming conventions that have become so famous for the ice cream flavors, uh, some of which have really stuck in the vernacular, frankly, as like cultural touchstones. Uh, there was always this, like we talked about earlier, linkage between the business and, uh, and the social justice peace component that's kind of always infused the model. So well, I guess what I'm driving at is without expecting you to pretend to speak for the business community writ large by any stretch, I mean, what do you see, and you talked a little bit about it earlier, but what do you see personally or, or aspirationally for others as like the responsibility and role of the well wealthy entrepreneur class in any basically capitalist society? You know, like what's the value or limits of that social consciousness that you're kind of a small part of? And, and, and I guess to just compl- complicate it further, how does that play into whether, you know, someone like Bernie has major you know corporate backers well i think that uh traditionally uh what business would uh say to the society is that uh it's not possible for us to to make a profit and help to meet social needs and solve social problems at the same time and uh and they would say uh it's it's not possible for us as business people to take a social or political stance to advocate for for particular uh, laws and uh and and we've all grown up uh in a in a world and in a society that says well, you deal with your financial needs, uh, you know, in in one uh, area uh, in the world of business, and uh, you deal with your spiritual needs in another area uh, in church or temple or mosque, and you deal with your social needs in another area, uh you know, by donating some money or some time to to some nonprofit organization, and essentially, what Ben and Jerry says is that you know most people believe that there's a spiritual aspect to our lives as individuals. Uh, you know, that's kind of what the Bible is about. Uh, you know, as you give, you receive. As you help others, you are helped in return. And as your business supports the community, the community supports your business. That's what Ben and Jerry started realizing. That you know, yeah, there's a uh, a spiritual aspect to the lives of individuals, but when those individuals get together in the form of a business. Uh, there's still a spiritual aspect to their group life, to that business, and uh, that uh, I don't know. It just kind of 
stands to reason. Why should we, as employees, as uh, owners, you know, leave our values at the door when we enter the world of business? Why should business be value less? Why should it care about nothing except for increasing profitability? And, uh, you know, the, the traditional business model is, you know, pretty much me first, screw you. Uh, it's the only purpose of my business is to improve, you know, increase profitability. If that means that, uh, you know, I have a negative effect on the environment, so be it. If that means that I mistreat my employees and pay them a, a, a starvation wage, so be it. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean that if that means that my business has uh, a negative impact on my community, on the if that means that I don't uh, use my voice, which is you know the voice of business is an incredibly powerful voice. You know, so be it. Uh, so all all we're saying is that uh, business, as the most powerful force in in society, needs to be concerned about more than just its own narrow self interest. And uh, you know, I mean, business is the most powerful force in. Uh, in our in our nation's government, uh, you know, all the lobbyists. Uh, well, you know, I would say ninety nine percent of the lobbyists on Capitol Hill are paid for by business. They represent the interests of business. There happens to be ten thousand lobbyists on Capitol Hill, uh, and uh, and they're all there trying to influence legislation in the narrow self-interest of business without a concern for society as a whole. Business spends about $3 billion a year on lobbying in D.C. And, uh, and, they, and the thing about it is that they do it covertly. They do it in a way that, you know, generally you don't hear about it. They don't. They don't like to advertise it. Uh, they don't go out there taking out full page ads saying, "Yes, we employ an army of lobbyists in order to, uh, you know, influence legislation so that it, it it benefits our business and screws the environment and destroys your health." Uh, but that is what they're doing. And the difference is that Ben and so Ben and Jerry's realize that business is a very political animal, and we kind of said that well we're going to uh we're going to be political but we're going to take uh over stands not in our own self interest but in the interest of the community as a whole and uh you know I, you know the whole 
all the accountants, all the lawyers, uh, business consultants, you know, are all telling us that, you know, you're crazy. You know, you can't do this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's going to kill your business. It's going to destroy your business. Uh, you know, uh, there's no legitimate purpose to business except maximizing profit. Uh, and we did it. Uh, you know, we said, well, we're going to try. I mean, we understood that the chances were we're going to fail. But we didn't fail. We succeeded. And the reality is that as the company has taken more and more uh, political stance in favor of justice, economic justice, social justice, racial justice, environmental justice, uh, the company has sold more and more ice cream and made more and more money. So, you know, I. You know, I don't know if you can prove it that, you know, one causes the other, but I could definitely tell you that after, you know, is that we've been doing both. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, most people's, you know, all I know is we keep on selling more and more ice cream. We keep on taking more and more social and political stands, uh, and sales keep on going up. Yeah, that I mean, it's it's always difficult to tie the linkage, uh, causation and correlation. But man, I can't think of any business besides Ben and Jerry's that has such a well-known reputation. It's so linked the the, the consciousness and the activism with the business. So, uh, but uh, but uh, but well, and the thing about it is that it generates an incredibly loyal consumer base. You know. Mostly companies are trying to get customers to feel good about them by coming up with cute, funny, or sexy TV ads uh, and hiring PR companies and advertising companies to essentially make up stories that sound nice. And uh, what and, and, you know, those things work ephemerally. They work, you know, un, you know for a while, you know, un, until, you know, the cute ad that you came up with kind of fades away. And, uh, and uh, but the difference is that when you build your relationship with your customers based on shared values, that's such an incredibly powerful, strong uh, bond that uh, you know it doesn't uh, it doesn't fade away when you know some other company comes up with a cute and it's it, it's, uh, it's solid. Um, so I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> you know if. My advice to other companies is to do more of it. And, and you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, just recently, uh, you know, after the, uh, you know, the horrible murders of, of George Floyd and, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor and so many too numerous to mention, uh, businesses have come out and made major statements uh about 
dismantling uh, racial injustice. Um, and so that's, you know, I mean, that's a step. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful step to see. And, you know, now we need to, uh, everybody needs to hold those companies' feet to the fire and make sure that they actually do something to back up those statements. Uh, you know, and I, and I want to say that, you know, Ben and Jerry certainly has a long way to go before it becomes uh, the racially diverse company that it needs to be. But, uh, you know, we're on that path, and I hope I hope the public will hold Ben and Jerry's feet to the fire and, uh, you know, and just make sure that they walk the talk. Well, great minds must think alike because uh, Henry, uh, I'm sure you want to build on that, Henry. Henry, actually, the very next question was going to ask a little bit about that. So I'll turn it to you, Henry. So... Corporations, I've noticed in this in this time period, have been kind of quick to tacitly support Black Lives Matter, but in a generally kind of a shiny PR way without any real substance. And um, you mentioned a little bit, but if you could expand on your your own personal response and feelings to the police killings, you mentioned. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, Ahmaud Arbery, you know, just to, like you said, just to name a few, because there are so many, um, Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, et cetera. What, what have you seen and felt these, these last few weeks? And have you observed any of uh, the larger corporations' collective response to the protests? And what, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that uh, for a lot of companies, their hearts are in the right place, and they're making very important statements Mm -hmm. right now. And I think that uh, one, one of the things that companies need to do is to diversify their employees, diversify their high-level executives, diversify their boards of directors, and also diversify their supplier bases to uh, make sure that African Americans are getting a fair shake. Uh, But the other thing that, and, and so those tasks uh, you know, involving hiring and promotions and vendor relationships. You know, those are that's that's a lot of hard work, and it's going to take some amount of time. And 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 each company needs to figure out uh, how they're going to do it uh, in a way that works for that particular company. But what? every one of those companies needs to do, including Ben and Jerry's, is to make a public commitment in, that includes a timeline, that includes measurable objectives for when and how they're going to accomplish those tasks. And then the public and the media needs to 
keep track of it and hold them accountable to it. Not, you know, not not allow the normal human tendency of stuff to slip and uh, and fritter away. Uh, and and the other thing that businesses need to do is they need to recognize that they are the most powerful element in our society, and that they need to use their power to change our laws uh, the na- uh, of our nation and of our of our states so that they are more just I mean, you know every time uh, a black an unarmed black person gets murdered by a police officer people are outraged and and you know, and then you know, I don't know, you won't have Well, the, the prosecutor decided not to prosecute those police, and you know, and then sometimes everyone's get prosecuted, and then you find out half a year, or a year, two years later, they didn't get convicted. They kind of got off scot free. And the re and so I think that the big question on people's minds is how do those cops get away with murder? And the way that they the reason why they get away with murder is because of a series of Supreme Court that have come to be called qualified immunity. And essentially what it means is that it's virtually impossible for somebody whose constitutional rights have been violated by a policeman, like by getting killed or by getting beaten or uh, having their property destroyed. It's virtually impossible for them to sue that police officer. Uh, you know, legal experts, legal scholars talk about this qualified immunity as a situation of heads I win, tails you lose. That, uh, you know, if you get into the details of the law, it says that, well, you cannot uh, prosecute uh, a policeman for violating someone's civil rights unless there has been a precedent uh, of the exact same situation uh, which has been sustained by the courts. And, you know, the problem is there's never the exact same situation. And so it's a catch-22. We can't create a precedent because there hasn't been a precedent. So anyhow, overturning qualified immunity is key to making justice real. And business people can make their voices heard on that. And if business decided to use its power in D.C., all those 10,000 lobbyists and that $3 billion a year to overturn qualified immunity, it would be overturned tomorrow. Um, So, you know, Jerry and I and the Players uh, Coalition have put together letters. There's a letter that came from 1,400 professional sports players 
calling on Congress to overturn qualified immunity. Jerry and I have put together a letter of over 400 business people uh, that are demanding that Congress overturn qualified immunity. And that's what needs to be done. That's what we need to work to make happen. Absolutely. Uh, As I've been studying more and more about qualified immunity, it, it, it seems more ridiculous the not only does there have to be a precedent, but that precedent has to exist within the court district or, or area that it took place. So that means that if there are cases from New York City, they can affect people in Los Angeles and vice versa. And that seems like such a horrible miscarriage of justice. Exactly. And, you know, so, you know, our country is a work in progress. And uh, it's up to us to overturn unjust laws like that. Absolutely. Um, And it's so true how things could change tomorrow if the right people who really have the power did something about it. And, of course, they don't, largely because they don't perceive it as in their interests, of course. Uh, Ultimately, it might be (laughs) uh, in a way. So, for you know, for the sake of trying to do our best to hold to our uh, promised timeline and uh, so that you can enjoy, uh, so you can actually enjoy the lake and some much needed downtime in these nutty, nutty moments. Uh, we're going to just briefly kind of end with uh, the, the forthcoming project that, you know, that you and I and, and some other folks like uh, Ed Edstrom have been working on this uh this Eisenhower Media Institute. So uh, I'm going to let Henry handle most of it, but just as kind of an intro, uh, you know, because full disclosure, obviously I'm going to be very much a part of it. Um, The Eisenhower Media Network is, I think just first of all, the name is super interesting as it sort of takes uh, aim at the military industrial complex and Eisenhower's speeches, not just the farewell address where he names it, but the, you know, cross of iron speech about, you know, this, this many schools could be built with just one aircraft carrier, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, we're envisioning sort of these retired, fairly senior military officers, perhaps intelligence, senior officials uh, on a wide political spectrum, willing to challenge the forever wars, the military industrial complex or both. So uh, Henry will dig into the details. But, you know, as an intro, this isn't your first foray into forming, backing or envisioning, you know, the worth of a group of senior current or former power insiders, not just military. So I'm thinking of, you know, uh, you know, your relationship or support of the project on government oversight. And, and I don't remember the exact name, but your previous group of, I think, you know, responsible business leaders for sanity. I think I'm kind of adding that at the end there, but, you know, something of that sort and, and you can build on it. But so as sort of a prologue to the Eisenhower Media Network that Henry's going to ask you one final question about, um, maybe you can just tell us a bit more about those two projects or, or similar ones that I'm missing. And uh, more importantly, just what you think the worth is of trying to gather senior, powerful people uh, for these sorts of projects in your past work. Yeah, I uh, spent uh, quite amount of time and effort uh, on an organization called Business Leaders for Sensible Priorities. And that organization had a board of military advisors, uh, you know, retired high level uh, flag officers. And um, 
essentially this was a group of business people that were using their expertise uh, in terms of budgeting and dealing with big numbers and uh, having those business people come out and say, we've looked, we've looked at these numbers. I mean, these are numbers in the hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, numbers that, you know, the average person can't conceive of. I mean, I can't conceive of it. I mean, I, I, I started getting a vague uh, understanding of it once, you know, Ben and Jerry's became a, a, a several hundred million dollar company. And I realized, well, you know, three times 300 million, you know, that's a billion. And so I started getting a vague understanding of it. But, you know, today's Pentagon budget is $740 billion a year, every year. Uh, it's uh, it's an unfathomable number. Um, and so the idea of business leaders for sensible priorities was to have this group of business people that deal in hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to look at the federal uh, budget and essentially say, hey, we're way overspending on uh, military and way underspending on education, healthcare, housing, uh, poverty reduction. Um, and, and we had... You know, and we had this board of military advisors that uh, vouched for the idea that, yes, it's true that we're spending way more on uh, the Pentagon budget than than is justifiable. So, Ben, uh, dig, digging a little more into the idea of, of the of the network itself, um, which I think is just an amazing idea uh, to get people like Danny with views on the military industrial complex or coverage and exposure. Um, I myself have had vivid daydreams of Danny or Lawrence Wilkerson or Matt Ho giving modern MSNBC pundits the business end of their of their anti war experience. But knowing that generally speaking, you know, these voices uh, can't get traction in mainstream media, especially if they don't tow the current administration's line on uh, on war and regime change. Could you tell us a bit about what you specifically envision for this media organization, the kind of qualifications for the officers that you would want to have, and how will this organization be a, a, a very different animal from traditional ones that try to push continuation of the American empire? Uh, you know, this, this organization uh, is looking to help military experts uh, that have a, a contrary point of view, that, that are not uh, just parroting the, the Pentagon's line uh, to, get, to get their voices heard. And it's, it's using, uh, you know, fairly, uh, I don't know, sophisticated and well, you know, well well-known methods of booking uh, experts on uh, TV, 
getting them into the mainstream press. I mean, you know, it's essentially a lot of uh, a lot of hard work. You know, a lot of uh, pounding the pavement and you know just kind of hammering away at uh, at the at the gatekeepers uh, that control you know, whose, whose voices get heard. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll also be using social media, of course, but the, but the goal is to get it into more mainstream, uh, media. And it, it's just kind of pounding at it day after day after day, kind of having, you know, dedicated resources and dedicated people, uh, and I'm I'm really uh, obviously personally excited about the project and you and I have sort of well you've been working on this kind of stuff for a long time but you and I have discussed this probably since we first met you know in in broad strokes like how can we do this and and there's enormous challenges to it and uh, I'm sure that we're you know we're going to work through them and it's going to be a process but it's remarkable then that the uh, that the minister of ice cream and uh, you know a, a mid-range you know combat officer who has uh, become a, an outspoken voice are the ones to do it. I mean it's 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 actually a little sad, right? It's it's great that we're in it together, but it's strange because you would think that s- several such entities would exist. And, and I think the fact that they don't and that, as we both know, it is difficult to, re, you know, recruit or find generals willing to speak out. There's no Smedley Butlers today. Uh, and and so there's that challenge. And then also just the fact that it's not happening elsewhere and no one else is trying tells us that uh, that maybe we're inherently right in a certain sense about the broader critique of the system that, you know, it uh, it is built to avoid dissent especially at the senior levels and it sort of reinforces company man sort of falling in line. And uh, I don't know that that's, that's striking. And I'm sure is something that even before we started this individual project that you've run into in the past. No, it, it gets to uh, kind of the, the definition of uh, patriotism and uh you know, I think I think the traditional definition of patriotism is kind of blind obedience to whatever uh, the leaders of the country uh, happen to be saying. Uh, but I think the real definition of patriotism is standing up for justice, standing up for those highfalutin words in the in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and um, you know making the sacrifices that are needed and 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 to be critical to to criticize our country when it's going down uh, the wrong path uh, blind obedience I mean, uh, I, I think that's what you had in Hitler's Germany. I mean, all those people, I guess you'd have to call them patriotic in the normal sense of the word. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we're going to let, we're going to let you go and we've been incredibly disciplined, which is not like us, Ben, uh, <laughs> as you know, from, uh, our video conference calls, I can go on and on and, and I'm sure we could. And, but I like what you ended with there. You know, I think that the, uh, the Nazi and world war two analogies get like wildly overused, but sometimes they're apt. And I think yours was, you know, my country, right or wrong. You know, that whole slogan that was really big in the Vietnam War, I'm sure you sort of remember that uh, that's that that does lead to the good Germans. Right. Quote, unquote. I mean, that who who's to say which country has God on their side. And uh, and I think that the way that you framed patriotism just now and then more importantly, through your actions. Right. Which you would never overblow and you would never overemphasize. But you really have lived your values. And that's what has always attracted me to you before we met and makes me so happy for us both, me and Henry, to have you on the pod. And then just to be linked with you as a colleague, it's it's been my pleasure, like one of the great ones in my life. So with that, I'll stop gushing and, and just thank you one last time, Ben, and uh, let you kind of close it out. Well, it's great to be working together, Danny, and I'm looking for uh, bigger and better. Onward, forward. That's right. We will, uh, we will prevail. We will accomplish. Yes, we will. We will make our country what it was always set out to be. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I will know.